are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Left, I said, this is it. Left, 
went to the family reunion, uh, and then here he comes. So he had called around to other family members to find out where this family reunion was. I'm from the country, if you can't tell by my voice, from rural Kentucky. So this was a city man. He traveled from Lexington, Kentucky, in his car, took the risk, going all the way through the country to come and find me. Um, so it was 45 miles away. Uh, he did a good job. Uh, he was a nice man, according to my grandmother. She didn't understand why I wouldn't even speak to him when he arrived. Um, I decided he was invisible to me, so I acted like he wasn't even there. Um, so finally, he just got fed up, and out of exasperation, uh, he went over and plopped down at my grandmother, and he said, I don't understand. I'm, I'm begging him. She won't even talk to me. And she said, oh, I don't know what you can do with her and Chrissy. That's my nickname. Sure is a bird. Um, so in that instance, I took it as a compliment. I knew it meant that I was a tough woman, a force to be reckoned with. Um, and so the final use of the term bird that my grandmother uh, was to, was to use was to refer to someone who was not right in the head, somebody who was kindly off. And so in our household, uh, in our family, my mother was the biggest bird of all. My mother had been uh, diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic in uh, 1960, and she spent nearly a decade off and on in the mental institution. Um, she was also, I mean, I somebody laughed, and I think that's fine, because my mother was also a very funny woman outside of her mental illness. She was hilarious. She could also tell a joke. So she was a bird, a double bird. She was a bird in a couple of ways. So um, I spent many years as a writer uh, thinking about ways how to talk about uh, my mother and her mental illness. Coming from a small town, um, when people would come up to me, they would say, oh, you're one of those Wilkinson girls. Which one are you? And I'd say, well, Dorsey's my mother. And they'd go, oh, because they knew uh, her circumstances. Um, so mental illness is something that I find myself as a writer being haunted by. I believe that writers have haunts, particular haunts. They write about the same things over and over in the ways that someone like Toni Morrison uh, wrote a lot about relationships between women, how girlfriends get along or don't get along. She wrote a lot about slavery. That was one of her haunts. Mental illness is one of my haunts. So I find myself, uh, for the longest time, I tried to write poetry about my mother. I tried to write nonfiction about my mother. Um, and I finally sort of came upon uh, this book in a particular way. But before that, in um, 2013, do you all know the poet Nikki Finney? So Nikki Finney is one of my best friends, and she was living in Lexington at the time. And um, she knew that the, the mental institution that my mother had been in was going to close. Um, she knows that I'm the kind of person that, uh, like many of us are, particularly black women, hold it all together, superwoman. You know, I'm fine with it. My mother was uh, institutionalized for almost 10 years. I'm good. Yeah, that's the story, but you know, I'm not going to break down over it. So Nikki said, I think it would be good for you as a writer and as a woman to go uh, and take this tour of this mental institution. And I said, no, girlfriend, it's okay. <laughs> We're not going to have to do that. And she said, no, I think, it, I think it's something that you would, you would get a lot out of it because they were turning the mental institution into a community college of all things. So they were tearing 
And so uh, <clears throat> I kept avoiding the key. And she finally said, the last one is on Sunday, and I'm going to pick you up at uh, 1 o'clock. And so she picked me up, and uh, we went. And, uh, you know, sometimes I hide, I have prescriptions now, but at the time I always hid behind glasses. So I put my glasses on, uh, you know, brightly hiding behind the emotions. And I uh, had my journal. And so I went through the tour, and I very meticulously wrote down the facts. Right? And I was thinking about my mother the whole time, but I held myself together. I said, okay, I'm going write down the facts. It's been open how long? Uh, where did the patients live? Where did they eat? And so we toured this whole thing, um, and I kept it together. And at the very end of the tour, um, they said, I said, well, my mother, and then he said, well, her mother was here for a while. And I said, yeah, my mother was here off and on for about 10 years. And they said, well, you can get the files. Uh, Maybe that would give you some closure. She said, usually it's really uh, medical jargon, and maybe there's about you know 10 or 15 pages. And uh, if your mother signs, is your mother still alive? They asked. And I said, yes, at the time she was still alive. <clears throat> and so I signed, she signed for me uh, to get the records, and it came on my birthday. 300 pages of records. So 300 pages of records came. Um, they had things in it like um, my mother's intake photograph. Um, when she was 20 years old, I had never seen her, a photograph of her at 20 years old. Um, there were letters from my grandmother pleading to the doctors, please can you tell me how my daughter's doing? Uh, what's going on with her? Is she gonna be okay? Should we come and get her? Um, and this was the first time I had seen my mother's mental illness up close um, as an adult. Much of that information was kept from me. Um, so I learned at that time that my mother had been institutionalized two years before I was born. I always thought it started at postpartum. Um, and I learned that it was two years before that that she had been institutionalized. There were the letters, um, there was a mysterious man sort of floating all through the records who would come and visit her. Um, and he came to see Mama and he slapped her. And the guards kept him from seeing her. So, the, so all through these records, there are things that I never knew. Secrets. So my grandmother had passed away by then. My mother at the time was still alive, but she uh, too would pass on. So what I surmised from that were things that I already knew that Black people don't talk about mental illness. That was something that we never talked about. Um, at times, my mother was invisible, even at the kitchen table, even though she found a medication that worked, and she was functional, and she had a job, and she was doing fine. My grandparents raised me because of fear. Even though she seemed to be okay, uh, they didn't want to leave her there. Um, so I forged this path. Uh, on writing about this subject. And so I wanted to just read a little bit from a nonfiction piece that sort of looks at some of the archival information that I found. Um, and then I'm gonna read to you a little bit from Birds of Opulence. But most of all, um, I'd like to have a conversation at the end, if you all are open to that. Um, I'm fine to even ask me any questions, um, but I'd like to have a little back and forth about what you all think about mental illness and how we deal with it in the community. 
So this is a piece called the, the Magical Fork and the Milk Trick, which is going to be in a, in a nonfiction book that I'm working on about my mother. Mama's first nervous breakdown began with a magical fork. Two years before I was born, while sitting at the kitchen table with my grandmother and my aunt, Mama announced that the tines on her fork had spread as wide as a grown man's hand, and that the fork no longer fit inside her mouth. My grandmother and my auntie held up the fork to the light so that my mother could see that it was just an ordinary fork. In fact, the very one she had just eaten supper with, but Mama refused to believe it. There's something wistful about this story, the three black women who would shape the woman I would become, sitting at the kitchen table, my grandmother and auntie trying to deflate my mother's illusion of the magical fork, my mother resolute in her explanation. As black women, as country women, I'm sure they were already trying to find ways to say, hush, already trying to bury the fork story, whispering to themselves, that nobody has to know. I conjured my mother that evening as a sultry 21-year-old with her long sable legs crossed, her eyes already a little crazy, granny and auntie's lips pursed with worry, all three women already pregnant with secrets. My grandmother said, Mama never acted normal again. Back then, my grandmother said, Dorsey spent a great deal of time sitting around like somebody with the blues. August 8th, 1960. The photograph is black and white, but I imagine her dress yellow or pastel blue. Her bra strap peeks out from her scooped neckline. Her features are sharp and asymmetrical. Her neck bones thin. Her face gaunt. Cheeks shiny with sweat or tears. It is the hottest day of the year, and her hair is a mess of curls. The photograph is worn, but I see my daughter's face. Her stubborn mouth, that familiar nose, through her eyes are rimmed in dark circles. There is undeniable mystery and beauty and fear. She is 21 and being admitted into Kentucky State Hospital for the first time. The photograph could have been snapped anywhere in the world. It could have been any sister in the 60s, but it's my mother, captured in sepia at the beginning of her worst. Mama sits calmly in a chair while she's being interviewed. When the intake nurse asks her about people making her sick when they cross their fingers, my mother doesn't answer. In the presence of my grandparents, she has grown quiet. Her eyes dart wildly around the room, but she says nothing. The room is white and gloomy. The walls are concrete slabs, which makes everything seem colder, even on this humid day. The chair is metal. The room feels like a cave. Smells of sweat and piss. My mother, my grandparents, hear screaming and moaning from the other rooms. Madness is everywhere, even seeping through the walls, lunacy in the very air. After my grandparents leave and the iron door is shut and locked, my mother says, people been crossing their fingers on me. My mother says, seems like everything I do is wrong. My mother says, people been crossing their fingers on me. I ask the Lord to let me live. He tells me he don't know. I had a vision, a black spot, 
saw it today and a long time ago. I see red spots too. My mother says, somebody's got my name. Somebody's got all my people's names. August 8th, 1960. Appearance. This is a well-developed, well-nourished Negro of ectomorph body type. Pulse 140 times a minute. Respirations 24 times a minute. Blood pressure 118 over 75. Head, normal shape and configuration. There is a small laceration on her chin. Neck, normal. Eyes, pupils are round and equal and react. Neck, normal. Ears, normal. Nose, nares open. Throat, appears normal. Oral cavity is of good hygiene. Teeth do not need dental attention. Chest, no palpable masses noted. Abdomen, firm with no tenderness. Back appears normal. Genitals appears normal. Slight discharge. Extremities appear normal. However, she complains of pain in her right elbow. Skin appears normal. Heart beat is rapid and regular. By the third day, Mama with her regular heart sticks out her tongue and refuses to close her mouth. She has grown sullen and mean with the nurses in Ward 3 East. On the fifth day, Mama bites and scratches the nurses. She is transferred to the next highest level of security. She becomes unresponsive, showing little facial expression or emotion. Later, my mother complains of milk in her breast. To the doctor's surprise upon examination, they did find milk. No evidence of pregnancy, emotional phenomenon, hormonal imbalance. The doctor writes these words, followed by the swirling doubt of question marks. When I hold my mother up to the light, trying to imagine this time, I want to believe that the milk was for me, that by some means she was already trying to make the only thing she'd be able to provide, milk. A mother's milk is a sort of love, isn't it? Pregnant with nothing but grief, my mother comes to me wearing pencil-laced slacks and a flowered blouse, her signature cigarette in her hand, a melancholic look on her face. The buildings rising up around her, her heart aching for her mother and for the land she knows, already mourning for the daughter she would never nurse. It's after the milk trip that mama tries to take the keys away from the attendant and ends up in the highest security ward. Restrained, isolated, her country girl heart breaks, four walls, no windows, no trees, no sun.
the year is 1962. She's had a baby in the squash patch. Uh, she's married. Her husband Joe is there. So all of this family is together. And the grandmother, who's the matriarch, decides that it's a great idea uh, to have company come over because she, everybody does what she tells them to. And so she says that we need to have the church people come over. Uh, and so this is the scene uh, that happens. Right before this, um, they can tell that something is going on with Lucy. Um, she doesn't really want to breastfeed the baby. Um, they basically have to hold her down uh, to breastfeed the baby. And so she's beginning to take a little bit of a mental shift, and they can't quite figure out uh, what's going on. But Minnie Mae carries on. She wants to, um, she's the elder, she wants to make sure that the community receives the baby properly uh, and that the family goes on with what they're supposed to do. When company arrives a few days later, Minnie Mae in her church pearls and a touch of wine red lipstick posts herself in a wingback chair beside the front door. She kisses some of the women on the cheek, grasps the hands of others, she eyeballs some but greets them politely and directs each woman toward Lucy, who is sitting almost motionless in a rocking chair across the room. Get yourself some lemonade and go on out back, she says to the children. In the kitchen, she says to the men and nods her head in the kitchen's direction. Outside, this night hangs like a cloak, hot and moist enough to ring out like a wet tea towel. The rain has stopped for now, and the heat causes steam to rise from the ground like smoke. A sliver of moon glows through the clouds. Lucy is at the far end of the living room, almost sullen in the rocking chair, holding the baby in a receiving blanket. Tookie stands behind Lucy with her arms, keeping the chair from rocking, keeping Lucy and the new baby safe and immobile. She says nothing, but nods once or twice as the women come one by one. Pretty little thing. Long and look at that. What a boat from the blue, they said. What'd you name her? Tookie holds the back of the chair more peaceful behind her shield. If she looks him in the eye for too long, 1943 comes humming back. She's a long-necked girl again with her belly six months swollen, cast out of the church choir and told she can't talk to her friends. Shame washes over her still. Back over Tookie's left shoulder through the haze of insects drawn to the porch light, Kiki is playing in the yard. He's been joined by one of the Jenkins boys, and they're running around the poles of the clothesline. German chocolate cake, lemon meringue pie, pimento cheese sandwiches, sugar cookies, mints, and peanuts. Joe, her husband, has moved the furniture back to make way for the crowd. Children turn noisy at the sight of dessert and are quickly shooed out into the backyard by their mothers. Girls go wide-eyed at the baby. Boys sneak extra cookies or a paper cup of lemonade and clap the back spring door behind them. Lucy rocks the baby, answers the same questions of Lou many times, hears the men's voices ebb and flow in the kitchen. The house is alive with the sound. She grins when she hears Joe's words rise and fall in the talking. Go fishing for too long, he says. No, he ain't up all night. I know you're right, man. I'm telling you. Girl, how'd you do it? How'd you survive that field, women her age ask? Some of us 
them she has the same since high school. Woman always does what she has to. Lucy finds a chortle somewhere inside to make a light, but even while she's throwing her head back, it sounds to her like some other woman's laugh rising up out of her chest. She places a hand on her throat just to be sure. Where's that man of yours that run off to? One of the women asks. He ain't run no further than the kitchen, Lucy says, and cocks her head to listen to the men. Ah, there it is. Joe's voice soothing her, even far off like that, rising up and going down low out there in the kitchen. Lucy thinks of Joe's deep laugh, his tender whisper in her ear, the deep growl of his snoring. Her hand, a little shaky tookie, steps forward and takes the baby clothes, bottles, and pink wrapped gifts from visitors and places them on the coffee table. She refills the lemonade and piles more sugar cookies on a serving platter before she returns to safety behind the rocking chair. Some of the women stare, Lucy and the rocker holding that baby and looking off into the air at nothing in particular, and Tookie, her mother, with her hands gripped tightly to the back of the chair and her head dropping every time anybody tries to catch a glance. It's an odd sight. Both doors have been opened enough times that the flies are starting to settle in the house. Two of them are taking turns landing on the baby's cheeks and eyes. Others are swarming around the pie. A yellow jacket buzzes through the living room and gnats fly around the lemonade. One hums in Lucy's ear. She turns her head but doesn't even swat at it. A fly lands on the baby again, feasting on the corner of her eye. The baby blinks. Lucy just watches the fly rubbing its front legs together, a tiny hungry tongue. Tookie reaches in and shoes it from the baby's head. The fan in the corner of the living room blows hot air around. A few more men have joined the others huddled in the sweaty kitchen where they find Joe Brown on the floor under the table repairing a wobbly leg. Congratulations, put her there, one man says, pulling Joe to his feet and shaking his hand. She done dragged me over here. You know how the women are, another says. How you doing, Joe, man? You getting any sleep? Joe Brown shakes his head, swipes his brow and his neck. You know how the women are, he's thinking. The men are still talking and laughing, but Joe isn't listening fully. He wants to answer back, no, I sure as hell don't know how the women are. He knows the man wasn't expecting a real answer. Men pat him on a sticky back. His silver tongue beginnings are almost forgotten. They nod at each other with this thought in their minds. It's only when he talks fast or calls up some city-fied story that they remember where he's from. After everyone has had a bite to eat, Mama Minnie taps her cane against the floor three times. The room quiets, and she walks into the center like a preacher woman and says, God sure does make a way, don't he? Sister Betty shouts, Amen. Everyone claps. We sure do feel blessed to have her, Mama Minnie says and points to the baby. And blessed to have so many of the Lord's servants with us here today. She bows and then says, Thank you, Jesus, and looks up at the crowd. One of the younger women whispers to the others and they cover their mouths. People applaud again and a few boys have come forward for more food. They whistle through their fingers. One of the men pulls his tall, lanky boy to the kitchen by the arm and threatens to whip him in front of everybody. A few of the women look to see if Lucy will address the group, but when she lowers her head toward the baby, the room turns noisy again. 
People continued milling around the house, talking among themselves, drinking every last drop of lemonade, eating every cookie, every last damn peanut. When the baby begins to cry, her tiny mouth blowing out into a perfect thimble, a few women turn and smile, tilt their heads to the side. One of them says with delight, ain't that the cutest thing you ever did see? But when the baby reaches a full soft cry, Lucy begins a howl. Tookie rubs her shoulders, but she's inconsolable. Joe comes from the kitchen, kneels down beside the chair. He says, baby, you all right? Lucy's lips are quivering, her chest heaving. She lets out a moan, cries harder and gasps for breath. She does not stop. The crowd is now quiet again. Some of the women admire Joe's hand on Lucy's leg and feel the imaginary weight of a man's hand on their own knees. Others are whispering among themselves, crazy heifer. Well, if they don't, we all, they say. Lucy rocks back and forth in the chair. Tookie reaches in to take the baby. Joe strokes Lucy's knee like a man who doesn't know what else to do. Before he can intervene, before Tookie can pull the baby safely into her own arms, before Mama Minnie can cross the room, the baby rolls from Lucy's lap, rolls like a can of lard, like a wad of fabric or a cumbersome quilt, like a rolling pin or a small sack of new potatoes, and makes a light thud on the plank floor like something being cast away. There is one wide-eyed look on every face in the room. A great communal hush rises up, and for a few seconds, no one says a word. Then all attention turns to Tookie, who falls to her knees, scoops the baby into her arms, and almost topples head first when she tries to get back to her feet. A few women grab the hands of their children, lower their heads, and leave quietly. When the front door flies open and people start to step off the porch, Mama Minnie sees a large woman from church, Francine Clark, standing at the edge of the yard, holding a Primex dish. Francine steals a nervous glance toward Mama Minnie, then nods to her and turns back toward the road without coming in, without leaving what she brought. Mama Minnie, who still has one ear on the commotion, but her eye on Francine Mark, Clark follows her wide hips down the worn path in the grass, and even in the midst of the chaos, says, says aloud to herself, something always been funny about that woman. <laughs> Afraid the baby might be hurt, Tookie pulls back the blanket and runs her fingers across the baby's head in search of lumps, in search of bruises. The baby stops crying. Kiki watches his mother and watches the remaining neighbors watching his mother. Mama! He hollers out, but Lucy acts as if she doesn't hear him. She ignores her firstborn. She buries her eyes in her hands and bites her lip, but tears are streaming down her face and dripping off her chin. Joe rubs her arms. Let me get you back to bed, he says. And the women are hushed again by the love in his voice. Lucy raises her head, and for a moment, her face is so twisted and puffy that Joe barely recognizes her. She stands, wills, leans into Joe, and he leads her through the maze of onlookers to their bedroom, where he places her in the bed and pulls a sheet up over her. Nobody speaks a word until Mama Minnie says, Here, y'all get some of this caramel cake before you leave. And Tookie, with the baby still pressed against her, rushes over to help wrap pieces of cake in tin foil with her free hand. As everyone leaves, a clap of thunder sounds in the distance and they scatter toward their homes. Rain pours out in buckets. 
Elders return to their front porches. Children search for June bugs. Whippoorwills serenade a young couple who dare to make love up against the roughness of a tool shed way out there in the dark. Somewhere a dog barks for a child to come back out to play with the baby. This Yolanda, born out in the field in the old way, and her mother, Lucy Brown, a plum crazy woman, are never far from every nook. And poor Joe Brown, she's lucky to sin and have and wonder if he don't pack up and leave. On this night, and for a long time to come, every tongue stirs. Inside the good house, Mama Minnie opens up her Bible, thinking of a few soothing words to say, then just as quick she decides to keep them to herself until morning. She reads Psalms 46. She prays before settling into bed. Girl just needs her time. She thinks her mind drifts back to that Clark woman out in the yard, big old body balanced on them little feet, holding her dish and not saying a word like she didn't have a lick of sense. Tookie stares at the ceiling in her own bedroom, presses the nubby surface of her bedspread, then smooths it out with her fingers. She repeats this until she has pressed some of the worry out of her head, a tiny moment of respite before worry comes back. Kiki gets into his red pajamas by himself. He kisses his mother, his father, and his brand new sister before going to his room, wishing he could sleep with him. His mother says nothing. Lucy and Joe spoon against one another. The baby curled against her mother's breast. By the time the house rests, Mama Minnie has already left her burden of the day and tied up her hair and is underneath her sheet snoring. Everyone is asleep when Lucy cries again. Her tears come as easy as breath. She touches the child's face as it nurses, then pinches the baby's nostrils together. She does this as she feels Joe nestled against her back. How simple life is. Silly how it works, really. She could starve the child of air, and even Joe, who is snoring gently in her ear, would never know. She watches her daughter struggle for breath, watches her bright eyes widen until the legs kick, and she lets go of the nipple. Lucy does it again until she can feel the baby trying to fling her head free. Then she releases and listens to her child settle into being able to breathe again. I hurried in and out, in out. She listens for a long time, only the teeniest bit of panic rising in her until the baby's breath is in rhythm with her own again. In truth, Lucy can hear the breathing of the entire house, the out, the in, out, in. They are loud. One big choir singing out survival in the night. Her eyes race around the room. She can smell the wildness of her own milk. Postpartum depression? Maybe. Maybe. No? Maybe she is. 
Yeah, I mean, it's not named in the book. Um, this is a book that's been used by a lot of, uh, and I love it, I didn't expect this. Um, I expected it to just be uh, in literary circles, but um, psychiatrists are using it as a teaching tool, and part of the students' jobs are to try to diagnose. There's several women uh, in the book that, have, that are suffering from something that's not named. Um, so these characters never get treated for their illnesses. But perhaps it is postpartum, but perhaps it's something else. Mm -hmm. I have a question. How did you get to uh, get the characters in the story? Did you think about these characters being part of the story as maybe something that occurred in the past? Yeah, I, um, um, I just spoke about, I'm writing about mental illness because it's one of my haunts. My mother is diagnosed as being a paranoid schizophrenic. And so um, writing about mental illness is one of my haunts. This is not, the piece I read earlier was nonfiction, so that was spot on my mother's story, the one about the bill. But this uh, novel, The Birds of Opulence, is pure fiction. Uh, but there is that thread that runs through it that's based off of, off of, not really, like the thread through it is mental illness, but the, what occurs here is not, what occurred in my household. Thank you. Thank you. The character Joe speaks to me because you said that it's like a love story be there the whole time. Um, my question, because I haven't read the book, is the enablers that are around this, the people who don't know actually what's going on, this unnamed thing, as I am in that situation with my daughter, who has after COVID years, she's hopefully going to get diagnosed tomorrow, mm -hmm. if, if there is something. Can you talk a little bit about how the book explores people who are not um, suffering from something, but are in it and don't know what they're looking at? I don't know if that's part of it. Yeah. None of these characters know what they're looking at, and they don't try to name it. Um, and I think this is this is certainly what happened, happens, I think, in a lot of communities. Um, I'm from Appalachia, so I think it certainly happens in, in, in Appalachian communities. You don't, there's a distrust of the, the medical industry, uh, and so there's a, a, an expressive distrust of any sort of mental uh, facilities or mental uh, psychiatrists or psychologists um, often, you know, and I'm speaking, some of that thread is, is threads of truth. Like I really think my grandmother, my grandparents had no choice once my mother started acting out, her mental illness just completely took over and they couldn't, I mean, they didn't know if she was unpredictable, they didn't know what she was going to do. Um, but other than that, before that occurred, she had acted strange, like the whole fork thing was true. But they just thought, oh, she's, something's going on, she's having a bad day. Like she, she's, you know, she's kindly off, or you know, she's, something's going on with her, but um, we'll just, let's pray. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's not a, um, not really a conscious choice to be an enabler. Um, Joe loves her. And he has no idea what to do. Um, in the end, not to do a complete spoiler, but 
you know, I don't have like scenes of her going to the doctor, but you know, she she does uh, attempt to go. She attempts to get medicine, but of course she's not taking it properly. He doesn't know. Nobody's monitoring that. The doctor doesn't keep her. Just gives her some pills, and she takes them or not, or doesn't take them, but they don't work. And I think that often happens in isolated communities. So. Um, you know, me, I'm a college professor, so if I'm going to go to the doctor, I'm going to go to the follow-ups, I've got the means, I've got transportation, I've got insurance. Um, a lot of people in poor communities, both rural and urban, like you go to the doctor, it takes you so much to get there. You have to take the bus, or you have to catch a ride, you don't know if your insurance is on or off, you have to find a babysitter, you have to get off from work from a job that won't let you be off from work, like all those situations you go in once, it's not fixed because mental health is so precarious, like you have to try different medications. Um, so you just don't go back. Thank you. I have a lot of questions, but thank you first for the reading because um, to hear your voice and sort of the inflection and the pauses on the words, like this baby, my son, was just joking all the time. <laughs> Very special. So I guess the, the easy question, or not easy, but have you ever thought about just recording the audio of you reading? Because it was just so... So, oh, thank you. So many people ask me that. And so far, um, it hasn't happened. Um, I guess I'm not supposed to talk about this, but there's not a lot of music. It's hours. So, uh, so it's, it has been looked at for a film. My greatest fear is uh, that they'll mess it up. Like I'm excited about it. It's my greatest fear because I don't think um, Hollywood quite understands the nuances of rural America, rural black America. Uh, so I'm a little afraid of that. But I'm hoping that the new attention will allow the book to be sort of republished by a larger press and, and an audio book will come with that. But so many people say that, ask about the audio And my second, the question I really have is about um, Francine, who you in the scene that you read. So Francine is another woman story who has her own story to tell. And uh, there's a scene where she's talking about her mother and her mother um, suffering from some mental illness and just sort of locking herself away in this house. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to, it's so vivid. Like you can just see this young woman on the brink of like, do I care for her? Do I care for myself? Do I run? Do I go with this man and try to have my own future? And I'm just wondering about the seeds of that, being that you just shared about your own mother and we don't get that from the book flap. Well, you know, the, the weird thing about this book is that it's, if you read my other books, for one thing, the, the characters that appear in Birds of Bodlands also, some of them also appear in, in the previous books, which is called Water Street, Collection of Short Stories. Um, and in my first book, Blackberries, Blackberries, I feel like those books have more of the real truth, you know, as far as like stories from my family, like almost directly told in a fictional way. Uh, but Birds of Opulence, it's weird because what happens in the book is totally fiction. But the rudder that runs underneath it about mental illness feels so deeply true to me. It feels like nonfiction because it is so much of it is true. Like um, the ways that, you know, my mother was often invisible 
we'd have a family function and they'd say things like, well, Dorsey should try to move out of that neighborhood. And my mother would be sitting right there. And me and my cousins would be like, you know, they'd say, are you not going to ask Aunt Jean if she wants to move? Like, why are y'all talking about her? And she's right there. Um, so those kind of things are are true, but it's, I mean, it's fiction. Uh, and as far as Francine's concerned, and it didn't hit me until you asked it in that particular way, as much as I've been on book tour with this book, um, I realize now that Francine's mother's character uh, comes from um, a guy that I did. I dated this guy whose mother was, uh, she didn't have what Francine's mother has, but her mother was, his mother was a, what do you call the people at the agrarian folk? Um, she didn't leave the house. Agoraphobic. Yeah, she wouldn't. She didn't leave the house. And um, he had like his whole life like a floor underneath her. Like she lived upstairs um, on the second floor. He lived on the first floor. And you know he was dating women and you know inviting women to the house and we'd be like. You know, I say we because a whole stream of us, but anyway. <laughs> you go over there and you'd be like, what's that sound? You know? And uh, it, you know, I dated him for about six months and I finally, like, little bit by little bit, he'd say, oh, it's my mother. And I was like, oh, you know, introduce me to your mother. And he'd say, no. And uh, she just had her whole life up there and she never left. Like, he would go out and get things for her and bring it back. So I think that a little bit of her, uh, what I knew was sort of the mystery of her is sort of in Francine's mother, too. Yeah. So I always say that there's a thread, you know, there's a thread of truth that runs through all of my work. Sometimes that thread of truth is, you know, as thin as a hair on your head, sometimes as thick as a rope. Sometimes that thread of truth is in character being based on someone like I imagine uh, Miss Minnie May, I always call her Miss Minnie May. She's my elder. Even though I made her up, but I imagine her to be an amalgam of like my grandmother and women that I knew growing up in church, uh, but a mean, kind of a meaner version. My my women were my old women weren't quite as mean as Miss Minnie May. Um, so there was that foundation of truth that I built built fiction on top of. Again, um, thank you for reading and what you're doing was really moving. Um, uh, my mother's gone, but um, was chronically depressed my whole life and seven of my child. And um, it, it was a slow realization around that. When you're a kid, you don't know what's going on. Right. My parents were both together. and. Um, and so you just brought up a lot of stuff, how you were talking about it like that, all that unsaid and um, those unsaid dialogues that someone talked about um, postpartum depression. And she would spell stories um, that kind of out of the blue. And as I went on, was doing work in public health, realized that she may have even had postpartum psychosis at one point. Probably had spiraled to that, but just not paying this, you know, she's alone in it because we're just, you know, 
weathering her, her times and that kind of stuff. Um, not until I got older did I start to awaken, mm -hmm. right, in this weird way, but I'm still kind of awakened, but I, you know, she's not here to ask those questions. So my question to you um, is, did you have conversations with your mom about her, her mental health issues and yeah. what she thought of it and did you all share, like, you know? Like, yeah, I, uh, you know? I did. I, I got on my mother's nerves a lot because I, uh, I was sort of like, you know, of course it stemmed from me, but I also think it was sort of like to rebel against the way that the rest of the family um, acted and treated her. So she was um, like uber present to me. Um, everything that she did, even when she was acting crazy, like she was, she, she uh, became, she got on the right combination of medicine and she went on to, to live her life. She did a, a job, she did her thing, she remarried, she did all kinds of things. Um, but you know, every once in a while she would say something that was a little strange. She was very um, crass <laughs> um, and uh, would say anything, almost like, like you see a, a child, like she had no filter, like my mom might say anything. But I did ask her everything, like everything I could possibly. Once she she took psychotropic drugs for so long, um, she finally figured out that she had to take them to stay out of the hospital to be able to function. And so she took them, and they worked, and she she lived a normal life. But they also wreaked havoc on her physical body. Uh, so kidney failure. Uh, you know, exasperated her diabetes, just, um, you know, uh, how many years, 50-something years of psychotropic drugs, uh, including some pretty heavy ones when they were trying to figure it out in the beginning. Um, so it took a toll on her, um, but we talked about it all the time, uh, and she was very faithful with taking her medication because she didn't want to end up in the hospital again. And she knew that I was taking this tour, she was still alive then, and I told her what I was doing, and I was writing a book. And uh, I said, well, Mama, would you want to go to look at Eastern State Hospital? And do you want to go over there? And by that time, she was on a walker, and I said, do you want to go with us? And she said, girl, why would I want to go over there? No, I don't. I don't ever want to step foot on that place again. And we, you know, we would talk about it. Um, but we talked about everything. And, uh, you know, I hate that she passed away when she did, she had um, in her way. She said, "When are you going to get that book finished about me?" <laughs> so I'm not working on it. And she said, "So I want to know two things." She wanted to get y'all to know two things. So one, what, what kind of outfit was I going to buy for her to wear on this book tour that she was going to go on? And what picture of her was I going to use for the cover? Um, and so, yeah, we had a great relationship. And uh, was very everything was sort of out in the open. She did not like though. She was a little bit paranoid about me. Uh, she did give me permission to talk to her psychiatrist, but she was a little paranoid about me meddling in her business with with her with her mental health. She didn't mind me going to knowing everything about her, her physician, uh, but she didn't like me talking to her psychologist too much or her psychiatrist.
Thank you so much for uh, coming and reading. I'm sorry I was a little late, but uh, I'm glad I got in when I did. I have to go ahead on and say, UK is really kicking you all out in a good fashion. I threw out the name Frank Walker, Damaris Hill, and through those two names, I came across you. I've not yet read your work, and I'm almost scared to, for this reason. For this reason. There's so much trauma that is out there that it seems like it kicks into mental illness and to those who are suffering from various things as we see in the cities. Here's my question though, but I'm gonna go over my fear because I just am scared of peeling back layers and scabs. You see what I'm saying? And but I think I have to, I think we almost have to. Yeah. Question because you know why? Yes, I want to answer that before you finish because we are walking around with open wounds. Yes. And an open wound never peels. Tell you to see that wound and recognize it for what it is, it's not going to ever scale over. We're just walking around with it open source uh, because we're not dealing with it. And uh, I, a lot of people have that reaction because the book is, I mean, there, there are uh, several of you all have read it already. There, there are moments of levity in the book, like any life, and there are moments of darkness, uh, like any life. Um, Bell Hooks is a good friend, and Bill said, the girl, I had to put your book down when she was reading it. And I don't think Bill ever finished it. She said, it's beautiful, but it hit too close to home. It's uh, my family's story. Yeah. I, especially when you talked about your mother, not only the mental health issues, but the physical after effects that come yeah. with kidney failure yeah. and things like that, and things that you don't think are invited into your body. But my question is about your students. <laughs> with this generation, and I'm just thinking of maybe the 18 to 24, 25 year olds, they are not as stigmatized by mental illness as those of us who might be exes and beyond. How are they reacting to this piece of literature? Are they being triggered? Can you talk about that? Um, I don't think they're being triggered. Uh, most of the young people who have read it uh, really enjoyed it. They, they, from a literary standpoint, they enjoyed like working on it as far as analysis, you know, carrying it, matching it up with like Gail Jones or Tony Morrison and doing comparative uh, studies. Um, I think it does hit, hit home for some of them. Um, but like you said, many of them, not all though, I'll say some of them, many of them, have coping mechanisms where they're where they're I think it validates them in a particular way because some of them are on medication for depression or anxiety and that's something we don't really talk about but they but they're on those medications so it helps them validate reasons to be on the medication and validates their life their lives in a particular way. And from a a writer standpoint I think my work has helped uh, writing students that I work with, um, but particularly MFA students in the MFA program that I teach in, uh, to take risks. You know, uh, for example, I have one student uh, who's from Georgia who came into the program and uh, was working with her stories, and I was kind of like, Is this your story? And she said, Yeah. I said, Well, Okay, but why are all the characters white? And she's African American. She said, um, I don't know. I said, well, what if you wrote some black characters for the next one? She wrote black, black characters, and, and it was all 
otherworldliness in it. It was werewolves and fairies and all that stuff. And I said, mm. So we've peeled back this layer, um, and now she's writing about black characters, and now she's going to be level. Like, my goal is not for my students to write like me, but to begin to take risks and, and unearth some things um, and write through some things that that come out the other side, I think that for, for I, mean, I think one of the, well, Toni Morrison said that the duty of literature was to be, uh, after American literature was to be to, a conduit for the ancestors. So I challenge all my students to, to do that. Like, what are you, I mean, and I think you can even do that in science fiction and you can do that in Afrofuturism. Like, what are you doing? Where is the conduit to the ancestry? Um, and that all doesn't always have to be, you know, highly spiritual or highly positive because I think coming through there on the top of it is the healing. And we'll do one more question. Yeah, I have no idea what time is it. What time is it? Okay.
park your place and get up and move around to get out of this a little bit. Um, but sometimes I'm already in it before I can. Sometimes it takes me two or three days to recover. Um, I was on a writing retreat in Florida, and I was writing about, this is another project that I'm working on, about my, um, my, my, uh, my people that have lived in Appalachia for 211 years. Um, so I found an ancestor, Aggie, uh, who was an enslaved woman from Virginia. Uh, and when I first found her, um, I was there on the beach by myself. It was like one of the, I don't need to go to these really isolating writers retreats either, but I was totally by myself. And I woke up and I heard a voice say, I hear my mother calling to me, but not in your language. And it was just dawn on the beach, I'm there by myself. I don't know how safe the place is, and I just started crying and burst out the door and walked the beach around and around, walked way, way down the beach, way up the other way, and then I came back to my writing desk and wrote all day, and it just felt like a purge, like she had taken over and suddenly I could see her life, she's an ancestor, uh, not wholly a fictional character, I and mean, I haven't been able to find out everything about her, um, but I fully believe that that was, whether it was imagination or spirit, I feel like it was, I was as close to her as I'm probably going to get, and it was a little scary. You're channeling her on that road, maybe. Hmm? Channeling her. Yeah, that's what it felt like. Yeah, it felt like that. I could hear her voice. Yeah. So that happens quite a bit. Thank you so much, Crystal, for being here with us tonight and sharing. Well, thank you all so much. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.